I invite you to turn to the Canons of Dort. You'll find that either in the Book of Forms and Prayers on page 259 or the Trinity Psalter Hymnal on page 897. This evening, uh, Michael and I will begin a series of preaching through the topics of the Canons of Dort. We don't know how long this will take. Michael will probably be gone by the time we complete it, but we'll… try to pick passages that capture the essence of uh, the article or the articles that uh, we are looking at in each Lord's Day. And so this evening I want to begin by reading Article 1 and 2 of the Canons of Doran. These are canons or writings that uh, were written by men who had gathered, theologians who had gathered from all over Europe in 1618 and 1619 in response to some false teaching that was gaining ascendancy within uh, the church. So, Article 1, God's right to condemn all people. Since all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been His will to leave the entire human race in sin and under the curse and to condemn them on account of their sin. As the apostle says, the whole world is liable to the condemnation of God. All have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Article 2, the manifestation of God's love. But this is how God showed His love. He sent His only begotten Son into the world so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then I invite you to turn to the Word of God, to the Gospel according to John. John chapter 1. I want to read the first 16 verses. No, I don't. I want to read from verses 16, verse 16 to verse 21. John 1, John 3, sorry, beginning at verse 16 to 21. You'll find this on page 1130 in the Pew Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, or better, His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already." because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This evening we come to one of the great texts of Scripture. Of course, all of Scripture is God-breathed, but 
Sometimes a single text packs a massive punch. This perhaps, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life might well have been one of the first texts you memorized as a little child. It's the text that's given prominence at sporting events. If you ever see those on TV, you'll see people with placards with three verse 16 on them, a reference to John 3, verse 16. Luther called this verse the gospel in miniature, and it is really a grand text. In fact, it is so grand that as I was working on it this past week, I wanted to throw up my arms and abandon the whole project because it is so profoundly deep and so indescribably glorious that every word has such significance to it, such weightiness, that it ought to draw us to wonder and awe and praise. But I didn't abandon it, and I hope that whatever I say this evening might be of help, though I want you to know this, that the gospel is indescribably grander than I will have the ability to express this evening. The first word that I want to look at in this passage is the world, for God so loved the world. What does the Apostle John, as he writes this, what does he mean by world? There have been some who have been excessively zealous Calvinists who think that the world here means all the elect from all ages and all places, so that this could be translated, for God so loved the elect. That's how my friend Thomas Goodwin understands it. But I think that if you look at the word world in the context of the whole gospel according to John, and indeed in context of the whole scriptures, you'll realize that the world here does not mean simply the elect, but it means what it says. It means the world, the world in its bigness. This was particularly important for the Jews to understand because for generations they had been the favored people of God. And because they had been the favored people of God, they have thought that it was only they whom God had loved. And it was so important. You'll see this in the Gospel of John and throughout the New Testament. It was so important for them to understand that, that God also had love for the Gentiles. And so this is a, a reference to that, a, a broadening of the understanding of the Jews that, that Christ, as the Samaritan said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, that Christ was really sent to be the Savior of the world, not just of Jews, but of Jews and Gentiles. That God loves the big world, the Saramakans in South America, the Yembe Yembe in Papua New Guinea, the Dutch in the Netherlands, uh, the South Sudanese in South Sudan. God loves the world, the big, vast world. But this world that God loves is not only big, it's also bad. You can see this in what he says at the end of verse 16, that this world should not perish but have eternal life, so that this world is bad. They're under the judgment of God. They have disobeyed him in a million different ways. They have given themselves over to the worship of false gods. They have turned away from God's biblical commands and have given them, as some cultures have, given themselves over to 
all sorts of sexual debauchery. This is a bad world, a world of God-haters, of Christ-deniers who hurl vitriol and uh, hatred towards God and everything godly. It's the big world that God loves. It's the bad world that God loves, the big bad world that is under the judgment and curse of God. This world deserves punishment. This world deserves to endure eternal destruction because this world has been created by God for God, but they rebelled against God. Already in the garden, Adam and Eve chose a different way, and all their posterity fell with them under the curse, and humanity has just followed in the footsteps of our first parents and have continually disobeyed God with the result that we have all come under the judgment of a holy God. We're a wide world. We are a wicked world, and we're a world under God's wrath. So that if God were to leave this world in its own sin and disobedience, no one could raise any objection whatsoever to God. Well, what does God do with this world? Well, the text says quite clearly that God so loved the world. Now, you might think we need to pause here for a moment because the Bible is clear that God is angry with the wicked every day, that God hates the wicked, that His wrath abides upon them. And so what's this talk about God loving the world? Well, it's true that there are passages in Scripture that say that very thing, that God is angry with the wicked every day, Acts, or Psalm 5, that His wrath remains on them, John 3, later on in this chapter. That's true. But it's also true that God loves the world. We read that right here, and we see the demonstrations of it everywhere. Remember how the Lord Jesus said to us that that we are to love our enemies. Why? Because God loves the wicked. He sends his rain upon the just and on the unjust and sends his sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. So God shows immeasurable kindness and exceeding love to a world that is hell-bent on its own destruction. And so we confess that God hates the world in their sin, but loves them in his kindness. Herman Bavink said it this way, that God loves and hates simultaneously. He loves them because they are his creatures, and he hates them because they are sinners. Or perhaps you can think of it in this way. You, you know that there are degrees to love. We, we all have that. I love Trinity Reformed Church and thank God for the privilege of being the pastor here. But I love my wife even more, I might say, the delight of my eyes. And you have that as well. You love your wife more than you love your children. Or perhaps it's better to say you love them in different ways. And that's the way that we need to think about God's love. Of course, His love for the reprobate, His love for those who have not been chosen to eternal life is far different than His tender love and kind compassion for those whom He has chosen from before the foundation of the world that they should share in His glory. J.I. Packer says it so helpfully, God loves all in some way. He loves some in all ways. So that God loves all, all the world, elect and reprobate, chosen and non-chosen. He loves them in some way, to some degree. 
But those whom he has set his love upon before the foundation of the world, he loves with a particular love that is unmatched by any other love. And so we say that God loves this world, this world that hates him. This world is loved by God. And I want you to notice that the Apostle John tells us that it is God the Father who loves the world. I think this is an important thing because we so often entertain misconceptions about God the Father. It's Jesus who is strong and kind and gentle and mild. The Father is just an ogre. He would be completely miserable. You couldn't live with him unless the Son had mellowed him. That, that's not the truth at all because you'll notice here that God's love is not the result of the Lord Jesus coming to the earth, but the Lord Jesus comes to the earth because God the Father loves the world. God the Father, His love is the source of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Father who loves this wide, wicked world under His wrath. And it's a world that he loves, and he loves them without any reason in them himself. As I said earlier, that uh, if God were to deal with this world according to their sins, they would be condemned, and no one could object to God. So, so there's nothing in the world itself that draws out this love from God. No, the world is perishing. The world is in rebellion. It has lived in rejection from the beginning. So that the reason God loves the world is not because there's any sliver of goodness in it. The world is thoroughly bad. It's not because there, he sees some sort of potential in the world and says, I think I can work with that and make them better than they are. No, not at all. God loves the world out of his own good pleasure, simply because he chooses to love them. Remember how he said this to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7. You out of all the nations of the earth I have chosen. He says, now why did I choose you? It's not because you were more numerous than the other nations. You were one of the smallest ones. But it's because I loved you. And I loved your forefathers before you. That God loves the world not because they compel him to love them but simply because he loves them. Well, how did this love express itself? That's the third thing that I want to highlight. And notice that love is not just an emotion, so that God sits in heaven and emotes about this world, has some warm feelings about this world. It's not simply a sentiment, as love is so often portrayed in this world. No, God's love is a action term. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son, his son whom he loved. You'll remember at numerous times throughout the gospel accounts, the father speaks from heaven. It's at Jesus' baptism where the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
At the Mount of Transfiguration, when the Lord Jesus met with Elijah and Moses in the presence of Peter, James, and John, again a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The Father loved the Son, and the Father gave the Son to the world. But it's not just that the Father gave the Son. That in itself would be remarkable for God to give the greatest of all gifts, what it was most dear to his heart, his own beloved Son. But God gave his only begotten Son. You won't see that in the ESV because the word behind only begotten is translated in most modern translations as only or unique. But it really ought to be translated as only begotten, highlighting that not only was Jesus the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, but that he was God himself because he was eternally begotten of the Father. That's what we confess in our Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. So that Christ, the one whom the Father gave, was very God of very God, begotten, not created. So that when you think about this, this is what just staggers the imagination. When you think about this, God gave God to this world. God the Father gave God the Son. He gave His only begotten Son to the world. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that God the Son completely agreed with the Father sending Him and giving Him. It's not like the Father did something that the Son disagreed with. Of course not. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one essence, though three persons. And in the one essence of the Godhead, there is one will. So it would have been impossible for the Father to say, I want to send the Son, and the Son to say, well, I don't want to go. Because there is only one will within the Godhead. Because the three persons have one essence. But even though that's true, the Bible does say that the Son acquiesced in the sending of the Father. If you read through the New Testament, you'll notice that the Lord Jesus Christ was appointed by the Father, chosen from before the foundation of the world to be the Lamb without blemish who would be the sacrifice for sinners. And you also know that the the Son freely and willingly and gladly came to earth to carry out the will of his Father. As it says in in John's gospel, in John 4, it is my food to do my Father's will. For I came to this earth not to do my own will, but the, the will of the Father who sent me, Jesus says. Or as he says in Psalm 40, which is quoted in Hebrews 10, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart. So that although we can say that God the Father gave His only begotten Son, we ought to understand that the Son of God was absolutely delighted to be given by the Father into this world. Now, why 
was God the Son given? Well, we read it's because God so loved the world, but is there any closer definition that we can have? Why did God the Father give the Son out of love to this world under the judgment and curse of God? Well, you can see here that it's so that they might have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, the world is perishing in their sin. Unless there's some supernatural intervention by the grace of God that will turn the course of humanity, everyone who is born into this world is destined for eternal destruction. But God, in love for this world, gave His only begotten Son, sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, as, he says in verse seven, as it says in verse 17, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So that the Son was sent by the Father, given to this world, that the world might have eternal life. Now, when you think about this, this means that it wasn't necessary for the, it was necessary for the Son to become a man. It was humanity that had sinned. And if God was ever going to bring rebels back into fellowship with Himself, then there had to be punishment by, accepted by humans, someone who would represent them. And so, our Lord Jesus came into this world as a man. As the apostle says so beautifully in John 1 verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, so that he who was in the beginning the Word and who was with God and who was God, the second person of the Trinity became flesh, took upon himself the weakness of our humanity. Now, just think about that for a moment. Ponder that for a moment. He who knew all things, being God, embraced ignorance, becoming man. Remember how uh, the Lord Jesus, as He speaks about His second coming, says, uh, and about that day no one knows, not even uh, the Son of God nor the angels in heaven. The Father knows, but the Lord Jesus Christ in His humanity, having taken to Himself a human nature, He also embraced ignorance. Or think of it this way, the God who neither slumbers nor sleeps, who is always awake and alert, who never lags, who doesn't grow weary. This God, in becoming man, embraced weakness and tiredness, and thirst. Remember how Jesus comes to that well in Samaria, and we're told there that Jesus went there, and when He arrived, He sat down, wearied as He was from His journey, so that the holy God, the unchangeable One, when He took humanity embraced human weakness, human ignorance, human weakness. He was hungry. He was tired. He was thirsty. 
And then he embraced as well human rejection. He who was in his father's bosom, as John says it, he was at his father's side, who lived in absolute harmony and joy and delight with the Father and the Spirit. And never was an angry word heard in heaven. Never was there any criticism of one another. No rejection whatsoever, but living together in mutual love and affirmation and encouragement. For him now to embrace humanity means for him to live among sinners, to be misunderstood by his disciples, to be abandoned by them in his hour of need. When he asked them to, to watch and pray, he found them sleeping. And then when he was captured by the, 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 the Roman soldiers, it says that all his disciples forsook him and fled. That's what our Lord Jesus was willing to undergo, to face rejection for his family to think he was crazy. What a great humiliation. And the thing is, the father gave his son knowing that all this would happen. What great love the Father must have for us that He would give His only begotten Son to this world. That's just in Christ becoming a man. But the incarnation alone, just the fact that Jesus became a man, could never bring salvation, could never deliver people from eternal judgment and from perishing. So when the Father gave the Son, it was not just that He would become like us so that He could sympathize with us in our weakness. It was so that He could die. The Father gave the Son to be the sacrifice for sinners, for the Son to take into Himself all the sins of His people, this rebellion, this rejection, this debauchery, this filth, to take them as if they were his own, and then to bear eternal punishment for those sins. It staggers the mind what the Son has done, and it staggers the mind that the Father's love for the world is so great that he would give his Son to be the sacrifice for sin, to perish under the judgment of God on the cross so that we could have life, to taste eternal destruction so that we would know eternal blessing. God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that they might have eternal life. What a great heart of the Father. What massive kindness and compassion. What undeserved love and affection just think about that, how much the Father loves this world, this God-denying, God-hating world. He loved them so much that He gave His only begotten Son to them. Remember what the hymn writer says, and when I think that God is Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. Or think about what Spurgeon says commenting on this passage. He says, when I think about this verse, it makes me wonder, do you love me more than you love your son that you would give your son for me and not spare him so that I might be spared? 
It's incredible, this great love of the Father for this world. So what do you do with this? Well, I think it's important to know that Christ is offered to all. Look at what it says there in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is why we go to all nations and we hold forth Christ to them and say, God has given Christ to you so that whoever you are, whatever you've done, how debauched you are, how wicked you are forever, how, uh, however long you have sinned, however grievous your sins, when your sins are so unthinkable you don't even want to mention them because you know that others will recoil from you if they only knew what was in your heart. Whatever your sin is, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall have eternal life. He's offered to all, to all people, to all nations, to all individuals within those nations. Wherever the gospel call is heard, there Christ is offered as the Savior of sinners. And he is to be believed in. It doesn't say here, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't really matter. You'll have eternal life anyway. No. This is God's love and the offering of his son that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. You won't get what you have coming to you as a sinner, but you'll receive what Christ deserves for you. And so you must believe in this Lord Jesus. We all must believe in him. What does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? Well, perhaps I can illustrate it with a story from one of my favorite missionaries, John G. Payton. As you should know by now, he, he was a missionary to the New Hebrides, Spent a lot of time on the island of Tana, had no success there, buried his wife and his son there, and then moved off that island because of intense opposition to the gospel, and then came back to another island, Anawa. And there he devoted the rest of his ministry. He devoted himself to translating the Scriptures. But he ran into a problem as he was translating the Scriptures, and that was that the Anawan people had no word in their vocabulary for faith. For them, to hear was equal to believe. And so that was quite a problem for Peyton, and he struggled over that for a number of years. The whole Bible translation project was put on pause because because of this dilemma, how do you translate something that is so crucial to New Testament Christianity when they don't have that word in their language? For instance, if, if to, 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 to believe or to have faith is the same as to hear, then how would you translate the verse, faith comes by hearing, to hear comes by to hear? It just didn't make sense. Then one day, John Payton was sitting in his study, and a woman walked by. He was sitting in his chair, and his feet were on the ground. And he said to the woman, what am I doing? And she said, you're sitting on a chair. 
probably thinking he was somewhat strange for asking the question. And then he picked his legs, his feet off the floor, put them on a rung on the chair, and then leaned back. And then he said, what am I doing now? And she said, in her language, Fakarong grongo. That is, you are leaning completely. Nothing else is supporting you except that chair. And Peyton says, aha, I've got the word for faith. It's fakarong grongo. It means to resist all other support and to put the whole weight of your existence for time and eternity on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's helpful, isn't it? What is it to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? It means that I don't trust in my goodness, in my contributions, in my efforts, in my attempts to be better than I was, in my successes at being better than I used to be. No, none of that actually matters in terms of eternal life. Even my best works are still tainted by sin and call down the the judgment of God. It is to abandon everything and to come as a needy sinner deserving God's judgment and to throw myself on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust what he has done for sinners completely so that I rest in him. I rely upon him. I fakaron grongo. I lean completely on the Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation. And that, of course, is what I urge you to do this evening. And that this would be the, the tenor of your life. It's, faith is, is not something that you do just once and done. It's how we live as Christians. Of course, for some, it, it must be done for the first time. But, but having been done for the first time, it's the way that we live. We always are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died for me. Well, may God bless these words to our hearts so that we might marvel at the grandness of God's grace, at his indescribable love for sinners, that he would give his only begotten son so that through faith in him we would not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the glimpses we have seen of your goodness and grace and glory, and we pray that you would bless that and that you would deepen our understanding, that we would be able together to grasp with all the saints how long and wide and high and deep, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. We pray that you would be our teacher by your word and spirit. We pray that our Lord Jesus Christ, our great prophet, would reveal to us the will will of God for our salvation and that we might be led to worship, to praise, and yes, to love. We thank you for the privilege we've had today of gathering as your people 
beginning and ending the day in the corporate worship of our great God. We thank you for the joy that we have in your presence. We thank you that the Lord Jesus has met with us and the Spirit has been present, and we pray that you would forgive everything that was amiss in listening, in preaching, in singing, and that you would cleanse our worship through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that our worship would be acceptable to you through your Son, our great Redeemer. Go with us as we head out into this week. We pray that we might carry about with us the aroma of Christ so that wherever we are, it would be evident to people, even if they don't understand why precisely, but that it would be evident that we have been with Jesus because there's something unique about us, something different. We have a different flavor, different taste. We pray that you would give us opportunities to speak to others of our great God and Savior. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.